This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is going to rebrand itself Motley Fool Money Pay and list on the ASX with a $1 billion valuation. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, Dr. Nirban Mahanti. G'day, Doc. Good day, Captain. How are you, mate? I'm good. I'm unhappy about the $1 billion valuation. Not enough money? Yeah, I think 10. 10 billion? Yeah. Nice, I like it. Each? Yeah, yeah let's make it each. <laughs> the boss might have something to say about that. I'm not sure whether we'd be able to. Uh, do we, uh, we'll take a fraction of that, frankly. Uh, Small, small. Uh, At least if we ten, get it one each. I reckon that's yeah, fair. Yeah, that's 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 fine. Well, we are we are the stars of the show after all. Yeah. We started off on a lovely tangent. We are going to get back to that though, when the buy now pay later space is going nuts. But before we talk about that, mate, we've got a lot to cover. We're going to cover some macro changes, particularly banks lending or starting loosening lending rules. Try saying that three times quickly. We're going to talk about some more capital raisings. The investment bankers have been busy in their little hives. We're going to. Have a look at the competition for home meals in home meals. We are going to talk about buy now, pay later, and the IPO that really wasn't out of the US. The $40 billion, I think it was, valuation that kind of, well, evaporated very, very quickly like steam on a, uh, on, on, a, on a warm day. And as always, mate, we'll dip into the full mailbag. Let's do it. Let's do it. Get more Motley Fool Money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate. So we do a little bit of macro at the beginning of most episodes because we do live in a world, we invest in a world where other people control the levers of economic success or failure. And we've talked a lot about the RBA and a whole lot of other stuff. But I want to talk this week about something a little more concrete. And that is that Westpac and one other bank, whose name escapes me right now, unless you know it, um, have decided to effectively loosen their lending rules by dropping the rate at which they consider mortgages. Now, if you and I go to the bank and we say, look, I want to borrow half a million bucks to pick a number. You won't buy much in Sydney, but let's pretend. Um, and the banks will say, look, our current rate's three and a half, but we're going to assess you as if our rates were 7%. That was the old way it was done. So even if you could pay back three and a half, they're saying, well, we've got to allow for the fact rate might, rates might go up. And if that happens, well, we want to make sure you're a decent credit risk. So it was 7%. The RBA or APRA, whoever it was, APRA, I think, uh, the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority, one of those alphabet soup acronyms, decided that that level was too high in the new world where rates are likely to be low. I think, speaking of low, Governor Lowe said for a very, very long time, I think as a direct quote, um, they've said, look, you can drop your rates. Westpac and at least one of the bank have now done that. At the same time, we have, surprise, surprise, real estate agents coming out saying, hey, you guys need to lend some more money because, you know, the housing market's in trouble and... Uh, Maybe they've got a vested interest. So let's let's throw all that in one big pot, mate. And let's talk about the economy, about house prices, and about the bank shares themselves. Loosening lending standards means, in theory, more people can borrow, and more people can borrow more. What does that mean for the economy? Um, well, I have a mixed... Actually, actually, mostly negative views on this. <laughs> Come on, as, you and house prices? No. As, as, you, can, as you can expect. <laughs> um, so, a certain number of levels, I think this is just like, insane. Right? <laughs> like, not just insane, like completely like wrong. <laughs> like, uh, That's so, too crazy. It's, uh, well, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> BS crazy. There you go. <laughs> so so here's, here's one problem, right? Mm-hmm. So what... Oh, Let's say you're you're judging against seven percent, the seven percent or whatever it is, five percent, whatever mm-hmm. you want to mm-hmm. assume. That 
isn't just a buffer against interest rates, interest rates rising. It's right. also a buffer against, you know, people getting into different types of troubles, you know, assuming that you haven't actually done a correct job of calculating people's spending. That's, yeah, okay, that's a good point. So it's a, so it's it's a catch-all a, buffer, right, for everything can go wrong in the home loan approval process. Exactly. And, and I'd rather have banks that are careful mm-hmm. than banks that are, you know, basically <laughs> not careful. Right. Because, because banks that are not careful are really uh, what yep. destroys economies yep, yep, yep. basically um, that's number one. number two is that you know we've got a we've got a bank sector where basically what 70% of the lending mm-hmm. is done what 70 80% of lending is done by basically the four banks yeah, right? it's probably 80% I think maybe even a little so, bit some huge number yep, so so yep. that is a huge like that's a systemic risk yep. in one way right yep. if you have good banking that's great on the other hand you know if something <laughs> is wrong it one of them is probably wrong with all of them right. and you've got uh, uh, you've got a trouble number two is that if you if the interest rates are going to lo- be low mm-hmm. that basically means that um effectively you know asset prices go up yep. right now which is effective it's exactly what happens right so if you if you basically say to people you on the same income you can now borrow more then <laughs> In a perfect world, people would say, oh, I won't borrow anymore. I'll, I'll buy the same house. I just know I've got more capacity. We know the reality is that even houses for sale are effectively a silent auction market because you're going to possibly buy the house. I'm going to possibly buy the house, You know, depending on which one of us can get them all finance. We never go to the bank and say, excuse me, how little can I borrow? We go to the bank and say, how much can I borrow? Yeah. And then we set our house price assumptions at that level. So if I could borrow half a million and now I can borrow 600000 well, I'm going to go look for a six hundred thousand dollars house. Yeah, so so that's right. So 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 it's a it's a push on asset prices. However, you know mm-hmm. it, that matters for even stocks and so on. Right, so the asset prices basically go up. Okay, interest, yep, yeah, yep, yep. So, um, but there's a bigger problem, right? That yep. it, it creates this issue that if you need say ten percent deposit, right, mm-hmm. to buy a house, and the asset prices basically keep going up, <laughs> it makes it difficult eventually. Yeah, so not eventually. It's actually already difficult yeah. for a first home buyer to actually buy something because they need to find that 10% of that $1 million. Right? Agreed. And, and they need to give that in cash at one go. That is uh, that is the biggest structural problem with higher prices. It's not the affordability of the loans, although we can yeah. talk about that. It is the sheer difficulty of being on a lower income because you're just starting out on, yeah. in, on the employment ladder and you're probably paying rent. Yeah. And you've got to save a deposit, which was always difficult. But if house prices double, even if the affordability stays the same, which is roughly what's happened over the last 10 years, affordability is roughly the same in repayment terms, but the price have gone through the roof, meaning the deposit is twice as hard to collect. Yeah. So I think this all benefits a... A much smaller, I think, section of the society. In You're not going to blame the boomers like everybody else, are you? No, I'm not blaming. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I think that you know, the, for the boomers too. I mean, they yeah. deserve maybe uh, you know better um, uh, term deposits or you know something else, right? You know, better interest savings and things like that. Yeah. Um, uh, so that, that's one problem, right? E- effectively, what we are doing is we are, we are pricing people out. Um, eventually, that's that's a problem. At the other hand, we are right. creating this propensity that you know you can now borrow more out of your house, so you can refinance your house, which has its own, you know, issues. Mm-hmm. Um, finally, I think the biggest thing is that if everybody is going to be buying million dollar plus houses, effectively, that is taking out money from. Um, the economy, right? right? You're, you're putting the money is basically going to bricks, not even bricks, like basically wood, uh, wooden land. Uh, which... Although to some degree, unless it's a new house, you're giving it to someone else who's then going to spend their money. I mean, it, money gets back into the economy one way or the other, right? So transfer from me to you, but you've got more money as a result, so you can go and spend it at least at some point. Yeah, I, I agree. But, but in, in my, yeah, like it's... It, it, 
in, instead of it being spent on some experience, it's now being spent on that, <laughs> right? So, uh, so next time we go out, you know, complaining about how right. retail is, you know, <laughs> is suffering, we can also point to all the, you know, all the money is basically going there. Right. So uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I think... Um, finally, I think I just don't agree that you know interest rates are going to stay this low. If eventually they have they have to rise. I mean, at some point. I mean, other maybe or maybe we're all going to be in a zero interest rate environment. In which case, we should forget about inflation, uh, which may, means we should forget about you know what what um, you know the reserve banks around the world think. And that's uh, the, I mean that is the big right. economic question of our time, right? right. Is, do we ever have inflation return? Because if it doesn't, then rates probably aren't going to go up. But if it does come back, as you say, rates kind of have to go up at some point, and that's a, that's a big, big risk for the economy. Yeah. Lastly, mate, I want to talk about – so we talk about house price a little bit, the economy mm. a little bit, bank shares. Now, I've been – I think we both think all, – all of us at The Motley Fool have been to some degree, somewhere between neutral and bearish on bank stocks for a while, and that's been, frankly, borne out over the last two or three years. We're now at a point, though, where the house price falls seem to have stabilised – Banks can now lend more. In other words, for each property they're going to lend on, they can lend more money. And if you're a bank, you know, your, your inventory is cash. And so the more inventory you can shift, the more money you can make because you're making a margin on every dollar you send out the door. Is this possibly the end of the worst news? Not necessarily all bad news, but if, if, you're, if you're a neutral observer or, or an objective observer, it seems like the bank's futures are probably brighter than they've been in a couple of years. So I'd say actually, even, if, even if relatively. <laughs> yeah, so I'd say actually the bank's future is actually pretty bleak. Okay. <laughs> I'll take the other, other but, but side. But less, less bleak than they were or more bleak because people well, are borrowing more? more? I, th- I think more bleak because basically what we're doing is we're just basically creating essentially a lot of debt, which eventually I think people are not going to be paying, is, is okay. I think the outcome that we are looking at. Not now, maybe in the future, if we continue down this path, okay. right? Um, again, I'll point to the fact that you know our household debts are basically one of the highest in the world, right? Yes. So if if we can't basically continue piling that on, eventually something's got to give at some point, right? Okay. Um, so I think that's so that that's a systemic risk for I think all the banks because they basically are the ones that are carrying, you know, uh, have given that that debt out, right? So. Um, yeah, so I don't know whether I would say, I mean, on a PE basis, on, uh, like, so if you think of the banks, the bank's growth rate, mm. effectively, uh, it's, you know, as, let's say it's stable around 2% or something like that is yep. what you can expect. Um, our banks are way more expensive compared to, uh, you know, traditional large banks um, mm. in the States. In the states. Um, our household debts are, again, higher than, say, in the U.S., um, overall, I think we just have one of the most expensive banking sectors. You know, our bank sector probably is like Canada. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, know I would not buy the bank shares at all. I think they're just overpriced. Interesting. I'm a little less bearish than you, as as is generally the case around here. Uh, I'm not necessarily rushing out to buy them either, but I do. I would imagine there's a decent chance that bank shares, at least in the medium term, even if you're right about the long term, may actually do better from here than they have in quite a while, just on the back of a, a more benign environment where in the past the risk of recession was probably higher, house price falls were hurting them. Um, th- there's there's some sense that, in a relative sense, even over the medium term, I would speculate the outlook for banks has improved meaningfully over the last six or nine months. All right. See how we go. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, we talked about bank shares. Let me get to another end of the other end of the market, the tech sector. Your natural home. Another capital raising. And I won't rant about this. I'll, I'll be circumspect this week because two rants on the same topic in two weeks is probably a little bit too much. 
man, <laughs> on, on a positive note, maybe high prices are a good time to raise capital. On a negative note, maybe there's a little bit too much free cash splashing around and maybe the investment banks are getting a, are getting a little bit too aggressive with, with some of their smaller customers. But this week, it was a software company called Big Tin Can. I desperately hate made-up stupid names, Doc. I've got to tell you. like it, <laughs> I, company, so I'm sure it's a wonderful business. I'm sure it does wonderful things. Mm. For the love of God, Big Tin Can. Come on, people. You can do better than that. Mm. This, is not, this is not 1999 anymore. Mm. Anyway, you do know Big Tin Can. Tell us, tell us a little bit about what it does, and then give us a sense of why it's raising capital, and most importantly, what you think about the capital raising. So, so Big Tin Can is basically a software company which does um, o- is. O- what is known as a sales enablement. enablement. I'm having a hard time today speaking. Um, sales enablement. That, that's software. me every day. Don't worry about that. Oh, that's true. Oh, couchy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tell me about sales enablement software. Well, so, rather rather laugh at me. Tell, me, tell us something. So, well, well, since I'm having problems speaking, I might as well <laughs> laugh at something, right? Um, yeah. So it basically is, is think of it as a software, basically a, a hub that, you know, you access. So think of the hub as the cloud mm-hmm. and uh, think about a software that's running on your phone or your iPad. So if you're a salesperson, you know, you have access to information. You can say, you know, what sales have been logged and things like that. It basically mm-hmm. enables, you know, your sales process to become more efficient, kind of lo- hooks up with uh, CRM and other things that uh, you know the customer relationship management software and things like that. So, so it's kind of supposed to give sales reps a bit of a, a bit of a superpower, right? A bit of turbocharging rather than walking in with a, a clipboard and some deals and walking to a customer and say, yeah. "Hey, buy my stuff because." They get to say, "Hi, so I see last week you ordered 3 units. The year ago you ordered 5 units. We have this new promotion coming up that's going to do X for your business. How about you order 10 units instead? Here's how your sales are tracking. Here's what your competitors are doing." A whole lot of information that lets salespeople more intelligently sell. Is that is that a yeah, that, that's decent a, summary? Yeah, that's a decent summary. You know, and and I think enable things like you know if some particular salesperson or a group of salespeople are doing well, what's helping them? You know, their information flows through. Oh, so nice, it's okay. a little bit of a that's quite cool. Um, it's a little bit of a way to also boost sales. So a lot of companies are starting to use these sort of things. Um, so uh, I mean, you know, the the share price uh, has was on a run, and right. the the company basically decided they're going to do a capital raising or a placement first, mm-hmm. uh, and the pace, placement was said to be for a material um, acquisition. Okay, right. Uh, what it is, I haven't actually seen the news to this morning. Maybe it has come out, um, but. Um, you know, and I don't mm-hmm. know what the terms of the deal are. Of course, um, I'll ask you to speculate on something we don't know, in, <laughs> know about at all. Yeah, so in, in general, so this is not new in the sense that you know uh, mm. this company, this particular company, Big Tin Can, has been on an acquisition spree. It's been buying okay. smaller companies. Um, the space has been fragmented, so the mm-hmm. sales enablement space is fragmented in the sense that there are few. Big players. Mm-hmm. Most of the big players have are you know uh, are private companies, and you know among the smaller players, I think there's consolidation going on for obvious reasons. You know you can't have many small players in this sort of field, right? right? So there's some sort of consolidation going on, and I think Big Tin Can is just making use of uh, capital. Is um, what does it mean? Um, look, uh, a lot of small companies are uh, using their high share prices, currently high share prices, yep. to, uh, you know, bulk up their cash reserves. Which kind uh, of, on some level, makes sense, right? Makes sense. If, particularly if these high prices are unusually high, maybe even overvalued. If you get a chance to sell something really expensive, if someone wants to offer me twice the price of my house, I should happily sell some of it or maybe all of it. Hmm. Um, so at some level, if the share prices are high, if house prices are high, it's a good time to sell. 
Um, you hope, of course, if the t- price goes on to double, then it means that they end up selling reasonably cheaply. But at least they weren't doing it six months ago at half the price. So there's some there's some value in selling at the right price. At, at a high price is always positive. Uh, of course, they do dilute current shareholders. And so at some point, they can get expensive if they do it at the wrong price. Yeah. On the flip side, and again, to, I don't know how many hands I'm up to now, three or four hands. On the third hand or the fourth hand, um, to some degree, if the acquisitions they're making also add value, and and you know more value than they're giving away in those new shares, then there's value for all shareholders in it happening. Yeah, I think the biggest thing to me in any of these acquisition-driven um, you know placements and mm. so on is like ultimately, would you organically achieve it, or would yeah, you, right. did you really need this to actually achieve the results you're going to achieve in the future? If you yeah. need this to achieve the results in the future, then it's it's kind of worthwhile. That's a good point. That's a good um, point. And and the problem is, it's hard to know. <laughs> At this time, even well, for, I think for the companies, I was going to say even for them, right? They're, for they're, them. they're speculating. They're kind of, kind of trying to work out whether, yeah. look, do we build this capability? Do we build this, whatever it is they're buying? Do we build this thing ourselves in-house? Maybe we're good at it. Maybe we suck at it. Maybe we haven't got enough people. Maybe it's all too hard. Maybe you've got to win over new customers. Yeah. But on the flip side, it probably costs you a tenth of what it costs you to buy the business to do it internally. Internally, yeah. But you've got that trade-off so, of, you know, you spend the money internally, it goes nowhere. Or you spend the money internally, you make a fortune. That's what the company is trying to build. There is there is this little trend among many of these small software companies. What they tend to do is they buy basically a software capability, which they can then eventually add as another piece, another piece of the puzzle for that the puzzle yeah, okay. that they're trying to build. Okay. Along with that, if you get some customers, then what you basically happens? Oh, I have you know as a fictitious let's assume they have thousand customers, and I buy mm-hmm. this piece of software which I this capability that I didn't have, but they have got three hundred customers, yep. right? So I acquire that, yep. and now I've got you know thousand plus three hundred, thirteen hundred customers, and I've got a new capability, and I can cross sell stuff across them, uh, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. As long as yep. um, you know these things are complementary, mm-hmm. as long as these things add value, then I think it would make sense, you know, and it's better to have like you know thirteen hundred customers than to have thousand customers, as long as you can you know keep those customers over the long term and yep. things like that. And the price paid is reasonable. And the price pays, it paid is reasonable. So, so all of these things make sense. I mean, um, at the same time, you know, small companies, I mean, small companies have, uh, tend to be volatile. They tend to have, you know, cash <laughs> issues that, you know, they're not as right. rock solid as, as a, you know, they're not blue chip mm-hmm. yet, mm-hmm. you know. So those those are the risks that you know people are assuming. Yeah, but yeah, it d- does show that there's a lot of money floating around. People willing to um, yeah. put money up in via placements and things like that. And because that money is available, some of these companies are coming public more quickly than otherwise would have. Right, like yeah. the the build out of these sort of things would be slower and done at you know out of the public gaze in in another world where there was less cash around um, and less frankly low rate cash that we've started by talking about. Um, that that is to some degree. Part of why companies like BTK and others are able to list at the current price and are able to raise revenue at the go or raise capital, sorry, at the current price, is because the environment's suitable for them. And so, as a as a business owner, as a as a, a an exec or a shareholder, a director, you kind of need to go where the cash is. Yeah, that's that's right. So I, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of money um, floating around, whether be it via super or be it via you know wealth outside of right, super right, and things right. like that. Those. And at low rates, they're all looking for a home. And and uh, yeah, exactly at that low rate, they're all trying to find you know um, mm. a place. You know the. In- the, Are they being cash at the current rates? Yeah, bonds don't pay enough. Uh, term deposits don't pay enough. Maybe you can go find some frank yield, franked yields, fully, mm. fully franked yields. But even you know those are hard to come by because mm. those have mm. been bid up as well. So I think what I'm going to do is launch a range of bonds. I'm going to pay zero point zero seven percent, and I'm going to call them James bonds. 
Oh, that sounds like an awesome idea. You, have you patented it? <laughs> or at least trade, I, trademark it? Mate, I don't reckon there's a whole lot of demand for that idea. No, the, the, you know, even if there is, there's a small problem. <laughs> you might land up paying that out of that 0. 0.07. Yes. 0. 0.06 to the James Bond franchise. <laughs> That's entirely possible. <laughs> Pinewood Studios in the UK, you get checks in the mail. <laughs> exactly. Let's move on. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, speaking of money floating around, speaking of brand new businesses going places, all of the stuff we've just talked about, let's talk about supermarkets. And not, not supermarkets themselves, but Woolies is kind of, Woolies is a fascinating, well, it's a fascinating, maybe it's a very boring business, I'm not sure. The, the, the kind of corporate shenanigans, the corporate goings on, the corporate kind of growth hopes and expectations at Woolies is fascinating. So for a while there, Big W, the Big W operation was merged with a business they bought called Easy Buy. And it was supposed to be this omni-channel retail idea that which went absolutely nowhere. But the idea was they realized people are shopping online. We've got online retailers opening physical stores like Amazon and others. Um, at some point, I own Amazon shares for the record, so do you. At some point, they've decided, hey, we, we need to be everywhere for everybody. And this easy buy business mixed with Woolies, mixed with Big W, was supposed to be some sort of everywhere solution. It was terrible. went horribly, horribly badly. But it hasn't deterred Woolies. In the past, they took a stake in Marley Spoon, the home meal delivery business, you know, those box kind of deliveries. They've now, as of yesterday, injected another few million dollars into Marley Spoon. Now, the shares of Marley Spoon were up 7% yesterday on the news because, hey, who doesn't love the fact that Woolies is keen on the business and maybe shareholders are hoping for a full takeover at some point. On the other hand, for Woolies, it doesn't move, I mean, that's petty cash, right, in terms of dollars. Mm. But it does really kind of give you a sense of how Woolworths is thinking about Retail in the future. And, you know, supermarkets were at one point going to be the only businesses left. In, you know, digital disruption was supposed to take away music and video and things, you, books, things you could buy online were supposed to be the problem. All of a sudden now, the online retailers have found a way to literally eat into Woolworths market share, no pun intended. So they've said, well, we need to be in this space too. We need to somehow deal with the home delivery, fresh meal, something solution because at some point it's a competitor. With all that preamble, mate. Are Woolies still swinging in the dark, or are they onto something with a steak in Marley Spoon? Well, I, I don't have a view on Marley Spoon specifically. So, so Marley Spoon is basically like HelloFresh, right? Yeah, all those. Um, all those. Uh, the other there's another one. There's millions of them around. Them, yeah. So home, home. The, the idea of you, you get it in a box. I send your recipe I've and the portion that, control, yeah. and you've done them. Okay, yeah, I've never yeah. done that. It well, you know, you you get you get the well with HelloFresh at least. Mm. You used to get a box delivered up front. Nicely cool, packed mm-hmm. with you know wool and stuff, and you know, sort of with the uh, with ice, you get you Sounds get perfect. you get perfect sized meat, okay. and you get perfect sized piece of broccoli, you know, two carrots, you know all those things that okay. you need to cook whatever they have decided you should cook <laughs> <laughs> and how you should cook it. But it's 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 it's, it's really convenient. It's a, it's basically a convenience. Right? We all decide who cooks in the manner in which they cook. Is that the is that the line from Miley Spoon? Yeah, that's probably what it, is. <laughs> it, it is just it, it is super convenient. Okay. Um, I'll, uh, yeah, so. So yeah, I've, you know, we used it for some time and then we stopped. Basically, mm-hmm. it became boring, um, <laughs> and I figured I could just go to the shops myself. <laughs> so is, is it? A, is a, do you think it's for other people? It's also a flash in the pan, or do you think maybe there's a bit more to it that maybe we're overlooking is not not for us? How, how do you how do you see this market and um, Woolworths kind of you know, decide uh, to deal to get into it? I think there's there is something to this in the sense that um, it can be made interesting, and I, I think there's actually something to. The partnership between Woolies and say there could be actually I don't know how what type of partnership they have but a <laughs> partnership between Woolies and Marley Spoon could yeah, be right. actually be really interesting because you could source ingredients 
from Woolies. Okay. Right. You could use Woolies as basically at every nook and corner. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah, so it yeah. could be a distribution I'm hub. Right. And you, you could you could use um, you know the Woolies uh, online delivery system. So they or Marley Spoon could be using their. their so it it naturally kind of fits in with their model, um, and uh, yeah, it's beneficial to have that. I mean, is this a fad? I don't know. A lot of people apparently are doing it. Given the fact that we have so many competitors, I mean, this must be interesting. Is there any? <laughs> um, uh, there, there must be customers who want this stuff. That's why there's competition. If right. there, if nobody wanted it, there would not be no any competition. I mean, that's my question, right? Because I mean, Marley Spoon is a publicly listed company. You and I could go and buy shares tomorrow. If we think Woolies is onto something, then are we missing a trick by not jumping in the same deal? Um, so it's a question of you know. Um, is the price right? What's mm. the growth opportunities? I, I mean, for anything, uh, this sort of business can't really have high margin. It's, it's, it's basically like, you know, Woolies. Woolies does like, what, $50 billion of sales or something mm. like that, and, you know, and makes a tiny money, tiny amounts of profits <laughs> out of that, right? So, um, That's your favorite type of business, as I recall. That's uh, absolutely my favorite. <laughs> it's um, my own preference is it, this just doesn't fit in in my preference zone in the sense that you know it's not a high margin business it's not very sticky in that sense i mean it it is um it can have a brand maybe well well, everything has a brand in that sense like you know um but yeah it's it it seems like a good business that should be purchased at a good price is woolies capable of finding out figuring out what the good prices maybe (laughs) they are in which case it's a fabulous deal if if they have (laughs) if they uh, like many other corporate giants have paid overpaid then it's not a fabulous deal um that's the question right yeah so i really don't have a view on that but but I think the sector is interesting. The sector mm. is interesting given that there's, there's a bunch of com- competitors and people are interested in this sort of thing. Mm. Uh, it's, it's all about the experience. It certainly is. I'm not sure. I, I kind of agree with you, mate. I, I don't know Woolies has been that good at <laughs> finding um, online. Now, West Farmers, of course, have also bought some online businesses and they're trying to do something as well. There's, there's definitely something to it. I think they all know the direction these things are moving. The big question, I think, for the big guys is, are they nimble enough? Can they be free enough to kind of pursue this stuff without getting caught with the the corporate bureaucracy and the way things we do or the way we do things around here i've said for a long time and i'm sure you have apple examples apple's probably always been innovative but what i liked about amazon's kindle creation was basically they decided to create a business that may well destroy their own book business back in the day when amazon was just selling books and they literally sent them halfway across the country you guys go over there invent our ebook business and don't get caught up with the way the other way we do things around here, or the, the fact that it's going to hurt our current business. There's a there's a real benefit, I think. Maybe I'm overblowing it, but of sending someone over there, wherever there is, away from the current business, letting them build these things in isolation, so they're not kind of dragged back by, well, no, we've got rules, or we've got processes, or we've got other considerations. Uh, run by any other business, you know, any other bookseller would have said, no, no, we can't do this. It'll hurt our current business. Amazon was able to say, no, no, we're going to go and do this over here anyway. If it kills our current business, so be it, because at least it'll kill it in a way that we'll end up still having ownership of the winner in this race, rather than pretending it was an either or and they had to circle the wagons around physical book sales. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. I mean, um, well, I don't think Woolies is Amazon in any way. So. <laughs> no, but I, but I also, I guess I'm probably, part of me, I'm not a Woolworth shareholder either, by the way, but part of me is kind of happy if they're investing in Marley Spoon rather than trying to internally create oh, yeah, a Marley Spoon solution in the sense that, well, I mean, Woolies, Woolies has always been a very, very strong culture, but that strong strong cultures come with their own baggage, right? Because right. trying to change or add to that culture can be really, really difficult when it's, when it's such a strong culture and in a very particular way. Trying to break through that to do something different 
can be its own challenge. Yeah, and maybe this is the right strategy, right? You you work with somebody who is nimble, exactly as you said. You know, these guys are small. They're nimble. They're you know fast thinkers. They're thinking. You invest and you know let them grow. If they grow, you could acquire them. But maybe you pay a higher price at that point. But you already yeah. own a bunch of shares anyway. And you've stopped someone else doing it, so you kind of you you you, yeah. you, you do get to some degree your cake and eat it too. Yeah. Even if that cake gets more expensive down the track. Yeah, I think that's that's fine. As I for a tortured analogy. That's beautiful. Should we move on? Yeah, let's do All that. Right. Value stocks. Market. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, where the sector, the hottest sector of the moment, mate, is the buy now. I would say normally buy now, pay later. This is buy now, make money now is what I'm calling it now because <laughs> you can't lose money in the buy now, pay later space at the moment. This week we saw Afterpay. Rocket, I want to say 13% in a day, added a billion dollars, speaking of a billion dollars for us, a billion dollars worth of market cap in a single day on the back of a response to Austrac, the the uh, kind of money laundering investigative unit of the Australian government and an upgrade from Goldman Sachs. We saw Flexi Group, good old Flexi Group, the business that was used to run the Surtigy business, as I've said, the very, very worst brand in the country. It went up 17% because its new product, Hum, its new buy now, pay later product, was being adopted by some new retailers. And we've seen just recently Harvey Norman's new after buy now, pay later partner Latitude and Latitude Pay is their product. They have also planned to launch, to IPO, which is at the list, with more than a billion dollar valuation. There's a lot going on in the buy now, pay later space, mate, and everybody's making money, aren't they? Well, you know, uh, everybody wants stuff now. <laughs> Nobody wants to pay for it now. It's it's, basi- it's the natural product, so, right? Uh, uh, you know what I call buy now, pay later, right yeah. now is basically we have taken the <laughs> obsession, the Australian obsession with property, to jeans and sneakers, <laughs> right? Um, so we are building now the uh, I don't know the the jeans sneakers pyramid, which is fine. Let's do that. Um, the jeans sneakers pyramid. You heard jeans, it here first, folks. The jeans sneakers pyramid, pyramid, and then you know why would Harvey Norman want to be left out, right? As, as a company, well we. Could do the same thing for um, for sofas and uh, you know tables and everything else. You know, hey, why pay when you know you <laughs> somebody else can actually afford the bill? So, All anyway. right, but let me let me cast this a little bit differently. So I'm going to I'm going to say that to some degree, what Harvey Norman is doing now is no different to what they've been doing for the best part of a decade. Mm. They were selling computers with sixty months interest free. I want to say ten years ago. I mean, Afterpay has genuinely brought this to a whole new category, as you say, shoes and jeans and a whole lot of other stuff and the, the whatever pyramid you've, you're designing here with a lot of consumer goods on top of it. It strikes me that I worry that together, take this whole group, Flexi Group plus Afterpay plus ZipPay plus Split It plus Latitude plus everything else, there's a whole lot of expectation here that somehow these guys all make a fortune for everybody. That money's coming from somewhere. I'm not sure where it's coming from in terms of the consumer uptake, right? Maybe it's coming from retail margins. Maybe it's coming from somewhere else. But, I mean, good on Latitude for launching, for listing now while the excitement is hot. Good so, on Flexi Group for coming up with a product that is genuinely – it's the same product they already had, just recast, right? It's not so different to what they've already offered. They're just finding a way to make it either palatable to investors or to consumers or both. So I think here's the. I would say that there is a, there was a difference. There is. I, I don't know about these new products that much, but I mean, um, if you think about the traditional, mm. you know, zero interest uh, credit card, pay in forty eight months, they they were technically not that, right? Right, because they had you know some hidden fees and some other you know situations and things that you know basically they made money off special circumstances and fees. Yes, right. 
Well, after pay makes twenty five percent of his money from late fees, so it's not that. Yeah, so so after after pay is making money off late fees, but there's no interest at least. Right. Right. True. So so that that's um, uh, you know there's no application fee. <laughs> Many of these things had oh here's an application <laughs> fee that you pay right you you first pay me hundred bucks yeah, up front yeah. and then I'm going to give you the sofa. So it, it's that that's the difference. So is this the democratization of the space? This is taking it from a, a niche product with high fees into an everyday product with just simply, you know, the old Jeff Bezos line, your margin is my opportunity. Is that kind of what Afterpay has done? Well, I think Afterpay has basically uh, yeah, changed the game. And then what has happened is other people have basically realized, well, you know, if we need to sell more, maybe we need to finance it, right? Um, now, oh. the, the issue here uh, uh, is, is uh, you know, Latitude basically lands up financing stuff for, let's say, Harvey Norman. Yep. Harvey Norman lands up paying a small cut. So it's yep. it's good for, I think the retailers because you know the the whole argument here is that the you know, the basket size is being increased because mm. these things would not have been affordable unless these things are available. Which brings me back to like you know the, it, this is ultimately questionable economics over the long term. Well, but uh, this worries me more broadly, mate, because the the sales growth that these customers allegedly are enjoying is not coming at is it's coming at the of somebody because retail sales aren't exactly going through the roof right now. Yeah, so so I mean it's it's coming at uh, yeah so. Uh, there is a difference here. I think the difference is the Afterpay's uh, core customer group is relatively young. Many of these people actually right. are paying directly off debit cards, not of credit cards. Many of the, these people are averse to credit cards. They mm-hmm. don't want credit card. They want to, don't want to be in this credit card debt loop and things right, like that. Right, right. Um, so I, I think that's that. And and then when you compare that with, I think what I would, I would, I would guess, the customer base of something like um, Harvey Norman is going to be mm-hmm. very different. It's not going to be those, you know, the 30-year-old buying the jeans. It's right. going to be somebody else. Right. So uh, overall, though, um, this entire sector, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's essentially the same thing as with, with the property, right? Mm. With with mm. housing. I think it's basically <laughs> just it's pushing risk for yeah. the, up the spectrum. Right. Um, in the meantime, you know, there's a lot of money slushing around. So, you know, um, uh, you just hope that the companies <laughs> that are giving out these things have, have actually meant built systems, uh, you know, checks and balances, dear, right? Dear. Now, in, in, in Afterpay's case, I think one of the adva- biggest advantages they've got is they're giving out essentially small amounts of money, yeah. right? And they would stop giving you that small amount of money, let's call it effectively a loan, mm. if you don't pay, yeah. right? What happens when you buy that $5,000 sofa and you don't pay? Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. That is, I think, a bigger risk, right? So, so many of these companies are now pay- essentially taking large, they're making really large bets and large debting on this mm. large mm. risk, mm. right? So if, if Flexi Group is basically saying, I'm going to finance your car that way, mm. and, and I hope you're going to pay for it. Well, that, you know, that's, that's <laughs> effectively like basically saying, well, I'm basically a car financer, right? I'm going to take a slightly different view, mate, only in the sense that neither needs to be different as long as the credit um, response uh, the the lending or the the is it lending as you say let's let's call a spade a spade the lending done by these companies as long as it's done overall responsibly in terms of both the size of the individual transactions and the number of them and the credit worthiness of the borrowers neither is necessarily good or bad you can have a you know there's nothing there's nothing inherently better or worse about a mortgage default compared to a credit card default as long as the pool of borrowers is paying you enough in interest to make up the difference. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not, in my view, anyway, at some point, whether you get a the, the couch, the borrower $5,000, they default, but the other 50,000 people pay off the couch, same as if you default on $100 and the other 50,000 people pay back their $100, the proportions are still the same. So it's kind of, I guess that's my issue with the, the sector in, in general, not even issue, that's the wrong way to put it. My concern about it is how, how good are they at balancing that amount of risk? Because you have 
One $5,000 couch default, well, no big deal if you've got another 50,000 people paying it off. If you have half of your, and let's be, to be completely hyperbolic, half of your $100 payments don't pay back, small amounts individually, but that's enough to break a business, whereas the one person doesn't pay off the couch won't because the rest of them do. It's still that question of the creditworthiness of the, of the pool and the amount of money you're getting from the pool to cover those defaults. That, that, that is true. Yeah, and it depends on how well you have done your, you know, credit checks and things like that. Exactly. And how well right, your right, systems right. work. Yeah, which is which is what I was saying. That, you know, um, yeah. So afterpay, I think, is is ahead in that game in the sense mm. that they're they're the original masters of this plan. They have uh, they don't rely on traditional, you know, credit check methods. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. You know, that'll be equivalent of basically relying on, uh, you know, the bank CEOs telling you that, you know, mm-hmm. hey, we need to borrow more. We need mm-hmm. to lend more because that's how we make money. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think I think I, I look at the sector slightly different. So, uh, to ask, so let me let me <laughs> let me ask you for some rampant speculation just because, mm-hmm. hey, why not? If you take the if you take the sector as a whole, mm-hmm. would you would you be comfortable investing in a buy now, pay later ETF that covered the whole sector? Do, do you think they were all going to make money either? Literally all of them, each individual one, or the sector as a whole, or would you be would you be picking carefully among the the group to try and find the highest quality, most likely to succeed, best priced players? How how, how do you how do you think about given the proliferation of them? How do you think about the sector and then versus individual companies? Yes, yeah, so, so my view is that I I think one of the things that people I think under, one of the most underrated things mm. with um with any product any service is essentially how much friction you're removing, right? Yeah, right, and. I have my doubts if the old guard have the capability to remove friction because that's you know they, they're great at creating friction. Then that's why they don't <laughs> succeed. Is that they, they are basically what was the know, old model, right? Yeah, you know, create more friction. Yep. You know, it's the it's the uh, you know make it more difficult and you mm-hmm. and, and things like that. What, so I think it, you know their chance of success is actually pretty limited because okay. um, the reason I think Afterpay is successful is not just because they've made a model um, that people want. They've also made it very frictionless and they're very seamless in the yeah. process, right? Yeah, okay. And I think that is that is something that's actually hard to replicate, especially if you're an old organization, you know, mm-hmm. an old school, you know, what I call the dinosaur organization. Oh, well, we talked about exactly that yeah. sort of so example, if, if, right? Yeah, if you're if you're like you know if you're a dinosaur organization, then it's very difficult for you to to innovate, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I'm sure all of these companies would like to feel that they're in Silicon Valley, but they're <laughs> not in Silicon Valley, right? They're completely the antithesis of of uh, of Silicon Valley. And yeah, so I would not invest in an ETF that has these okay. dinosaurs there trying to be the me too, okay. right? The the worst thing you want to do in any sort of uh, at least this is what what I think is is I'm not a believer in me too investing, you know, mm-hmm. like, Oh, I am, you're doing that and that's working. So I'm going to do that too. Okay. Uh, you know, you know, just basically if you have to invest, I would say invest in the best, invest in the leader. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you can invest in the best, why would you invest in the, you know, the second tier, the third tier, the fourth tier, the nth tier of whatever they are. So, you know, so I would not invest in the ETF because largely I think a lot of these people are basically just copycats. Fascinating. Do you expect them to lose money or just not do as well as the leaders? Well, you know, I could uh, since we you know, we can we can make bombastic um, claims. That's what we get the headlines. We can allege. I would say that you know some of these things are going to actually blow up. Oh, right? there we in go. The, you know, it, just like I, like I said, it. that some of the banks could blow up. I think some of these things have a much higher probability of blowing up than I like it. Uh, than than uh, than say our banks. And that's so. the big. That, I mean, that that is the big question, right? While ever the economy goes okay. 
And while ever they're attracting new customers, I, I was going to I was going to talk about a Ponzi scheme, which sounds horrible, and I, I shouldn't I shouldn't use the same the same phrase in the same sentence. But the the idea of you know while ever people are adding money to a Ponzi scheme, it doesn't look terrible. It's only when the music stops. And you can't sort of pay back the people who put money in the first place that Ponzi schemes come undone, right? Bernie Madoff ran one for 40 years, whatever it was, because he basically had more people coming to him. While ever the music keeps going, everything looks okay, and there's no downside to that. It's kind of, you know, to use a Buffett uh, phrase. Just say pyramid. Well, no, no, no. It's, it's a pyramid. A, no, but, no, no, no. My point is, you know, it's when the tide goes out, you work out who's swimming naked, to mm. Buffett's point, right? And so at some point, when we have the next economic downturn, that's when, to your point, if someone's going to go broke, that's when it'll happen. Mm. And we kind of... This is the we've had such a boom for such a long time. It's hard to really know where the fault lines are mm. broadly, let alone in buy now pay later. You know how well these companies are reserving for losses, how well they're assessing credit, how much money they're lending. These things are just super untested, right? Oh, it's absolutely true. I think you know, and and I think the flip side is, as as you said, like the longer this continues. I think the the next time, whenever that next time is, it's going to actually be pretty bad, largely because people have forgotten how mm, things, mm. how bad things can get. Twenty eight years of recession free growth. Yeah, it's it, you know, <laughs> it's a pretty the, bloody the, impressive track yeah, record. Yeah, it's, it's such a track record that you know, you, you didn't, everybody thinks that you know things are invincible and things don't. You actually, they never turn south. They never go south, right? So, well, hopefully, it continues uh, going north and not south. <laughs> but Mate, it, yeah, speaking of going south, stay tuned. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, there's this company in the US that seemingly is has the Midas touch. Everything it touches turns to gold. It managed to turn property trusts, boring, old, low growth, high yield stagnant kind of, you know, stable property trust, the, the the widows and orphans type stocks, into the hottest tech stock, potentially, of 2019. Mm. Until it didn't. Now, I'm talking, of course, about WeWork. If you've, if you've been in any of the capital cities around Australia, or even some of the minor cities these days, WeWork, the brand is everywhere. It is just... So, so we, what WeWork does, let's define our terms, WeWork, its job is basically arbitrage. It, it rents entire floors of buildings and then sublets them to individuals to use a single chair, and they call it a co-working space. Now, add some kombucha, add some fake grass, uh, add some networking events, and what have I missed? Uh, Cold-pressed coffee, maybe some craft beers, uh, some Apple Macs, of course, because, you know, cool people, cool people don't the, use PCs. For the tennis, uh, you know, table tennis. Table tennis, you know. Tennis, some, you know do, they, do they still the, use beanbags? Oh, yeah, it, the be, yeah, beanie still? bags. Yeah, beanbags, right, okay, uh, table good. tennis, there we go. Uh, some cool lighting. In any case, that's how they've managed to basically provo- do this arbitrage, right? They've they rented the floor for 100 bucks, and they managed to convince a whole lot of knucklehead customers to pay 200 bucks together to sublet that space. Now, on one level, that's what companies like ServeCorp have been doing forever, the serviced office idea of, hey, we'll provide you a receptionist and a meeting room. You can book the meeting room a couple of days a week or a couple of times a month, and you can come and work from this space, and it gives you an office and a place to go and a place to be and have meetings. And that's kind of that was kind of cool. Now, ServCorp has been absolutely friendless over the last couple of years. Now, speaking of a little bit like the buy now, pay later space, the old guard seemingly blowing in the wind, hmm. WeWork has... I want to say it's over a $40 billion valuation at one point, right? Mm. It doesn't make money, does it? No. And, <laughs> and, it so, is, and, and I will say emphatically, 
it is the antithesis of a tech company. Right, and and it's never been through, speaking of downturns again, it's never been through a downturn either. So it's got this massive, massive obligation to landlords to pay pay rent on all these floors week after week, month after month, year after year, in the hope there's enough new entrepreneurs, you know, fintech entrepreneurs, and uh, we've got a mate who's one of those, um, and a whole lot of other people who, who are going to go and drink kombucha at a WeWork and make a fortune building their new businesses. And while the music kind of keeps going, the business itself will at least cover its costs. Forty billion dollars is look. I, I'm a, I'm a long term skeptic, and so I'm probably enjoying the fact that thus far I've been proven a little bit right. The company was going to list on the New York or Nasdaq stock market. I don't know which. New York, I think. Yeah. Uh, in I want to say October, and they were almost going to go to market. They just couldn't find enough investors to actually buy the stock at a forty billion dollar valuation. Yeah. What happened? <laughs> so, so I actually love this. I really love this because, <laughs> first, I think it's a great example where the public market is basically telling the private investors that, jeez, oh, you guys were paying for a REIT, basically a multiple that people would pay for, like in high flying tech. Now, property trusts normally trade on something like eleven or twelve times earnings because the reality is, you buy a office building for hundred million dollars, you make your seven million dollars a year in rent, give or take. That's what you've got to pay out to investors. Now, maybe yeah. you get a property up, your valuation upgrade because people, more people want to live there. Maybe you do a new fit out and that gets you another half a percent worth of yield. But the reality is commercial property or retail property, which is what property trusts are, office property, same thing. Yeah. You, you you buy it for X. You you rent it out for basically market rents, which is normally 4 5 6 7% of the property yeah. price. That's where your returns come from. Now, we work, to be fair, has done a really nice job of – Kind of fractionalizing this to a way that you know you don't have to rent a whole. If you're if you're renting a whole building, you get to pay low rents, right? Yeah. You're renting a floor, you're paying a little bit more. If you're renting a single seat, WeWork can charge a very pretty penny, right? They can they can really yeah. take you to town as an individual. If you're going to say, well, look, I want one chair or or a small two person office in a WeWork, um, they're going to say, great, I'm going to charge you three times per square meter what you'd have to pay if you had a whole floor. So yeah. there's 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 mar- there's margin there, but it's not that much. <laughs> Yeah, so like you know, you basically pay some multiple of the free, uh, you know, the free cash flow from mm-hmm. operations, right? For for a REIT like this, right? Exactly. And and uh, let's say as exactly because you know what basically is doing classical, you know, um, uh, multiplexing, putting more things through the pipe because yeah, yeah, you can, right. um, uh, because you can squeeze more that way. I don't uh, think the, I don't think the business model itself is necessarily well. The very basic version of the business model is not. It's, bad. it's, it's you know I think their basic business model of what they offer is great. So right? it's done it for years. Yeah, and 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 I think what they're offering as a they're Offering to customers is very attractive. I have no problems with that. I, I think the question is anybody who looked at the books basically would have to decide whether <laughs> the free cash flow and the potential growth of free cash flow that, or not even, you know, free, the, the free cash flow from operations is mm-hmm. was it worth 40 billion or not? And remember, for every, essentially for growth here comes how? Like, you know, every year you can mm-hmm. pass on a little bit of, you know, rent increase, right? So yep. You get 2%, 3%, whatever. Let's say 4% if you're very lucky. Yep. Um, but the, the growth basically comes from acquiring new properties, right? Which basically, mm-hmm. acquiring you, leasing new properties, yep. which is yep. basically taking on more obligations, which means you need to have either some debt or you know enough cash flow to keep that rolling. Because I've got to say, mate, BHP is not going to cancel a floor of an office building anytime soon, but if you're renting it to half a dozen tech entrepreneurs and the tech sector takes a dive, they're leaving you after a month. Yeah, right. But 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 let's say that even doesn't happen, right? Even if that doesn't happen, and you know, you just assume the good times continue rolling. Um, you know, I'm just saying that you know, WeWork is just the property market equivalent, um, uh, the thing. Even then, it is just outrageous because you know, <laughs> how do you give that kind of multiple? 
um, uh, to you know the, the crazy multiples that it has been trading on. So given and given that it basically doesn't even have again yeah, multiples of what exactly? Oh, exactly. Profits yeah. Yet. So so, the, so the, there is <laughs> there is oh, no uh, free cash flow from operations here because it's basically bleeding money like anything. So I, I don't know. Yeah. So this this is a great example of where the public market basically says no 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 you guys got carried away. <laughs> we are not picking this up at that price. And I think the price that got quoted was like half of whatever price was I think the investment bank was even less than that or something like that. basically it's been pulled like yeah. the, the plug has been pulled the CEO and co-founder is gone right um, well and that's the other side that's the other part of the story I want to I want to kind of mention because we had one of our colleagues Ryan Newman say during the week to us and I think he's right by the way I don't know if you agree but to some degree I feel like the CEO was kind of the sacrificial lamb here the venture capitalists who backed this business who added more and more money at ever higher valuations are now sitting on meaningful loss like they're, they're sitting on nine ten figure losses right they're, they're now losing billions of dollars they, they put in more money at a was it a forty billion dollar valuation? I think was the last mm. private valuation. Hoping to sell it for fifty or sixty or seventy billion yeah. and making their money. If this thing's worth now, just pick it. I'm gonna say twenty. They've lost half of their capital in this thing, and so when the IPO got pulled, they went, "Well, I guess we've got to find a scapegoat here. How mm. about we get rid of the CEO?" And they all say to the public markets, "Look, we fixed everything. Everything's okay now." I don't know. The public markets were saying, "Well." We're going to pay twenty billion less because of the CEO. It's not like it's worth twice as much under a different manager. This honestly feels to me like a bit of PR spin by some venture capitalists who can afford to and need to find a circuit breaker and have basically thrown this bloke under the bus, yeah. so they can try and find a way to pump the shares back up and get out at some sort of price that's just simply more than today. Yeah, so there's a little bit of a backstory here. The backstory here is that SoftBank, which is which has one of the big investors here, also another big investor in they were invested in Uber. Are they the biggest yeah. VC? They're, in the world, I think they're they one be. of the biggest, right. uh, uh, if not the biggest. Um, and they had this, you know, big vision fund that they were mm. going to launch a vision fund part two. The way the part two <laughs> was going to be funded was uh, through some sovereign wealth funds mm. plus sell down from their holdings from part one. Right. Well, I think that part one is actually not going well because a lot of the stuff that they have been, you know, pushing the valuations up, yeah, you know, yeah. significant round after round of valuations have been going up. The public market is basically saying, oh, yeah, I don't know, you know, is Uber worth that much, really, yeah. you know, or is WeWork worth this much? And so, I mean, yeah, sometimes the public market actually does a good job of, um, you know, in terms of figuring <laughs> out, right, or yeah. get, getting it, you know, uh, getting the price right. Yeah, so. yeah. I, I mean, i got to say, mate, this is... Is it just WeWork, though? I mean, there's been plenty of listings Beyond Meat is one, and you know, Andrew Leggett, another one of our colleagues who's a Beyond Meat shareholder and is a big fan. Uh, I'm, I'm less of a fan, not of the not of the business necessarily, but of the valuation. Uh, Zuber, there's Slack, there's Zoom. I mean, is it the public market's finally kind of taking a bit more of a, a cold shower here? It's, you know, these other guys have got away at pretty big valuations in the past. Now, some of them have fallen from those valuations, but in any case, the listings were still you know, rapturously taken up. This feels like to me, yes, we're talking about WeWork as a single company, and that's true. I wonder, though, if we're kind of, as a, as a group of investors, coming to our senses about how much we should be paying for these things that are going public. So, uh, here's the, yeah, so maybe partly. So, I think a lot of these um, uh, tech, the things that people think are tech, mm, right, mm. and textile valuations that uh, I think they got beaten down. So, like Uber had, I would say, a bad IPO, right? So, a good IPO is IPO that basically pops. And the reason wow. the IPO pops is. That's a whole different question. Yeah, the, the IPO pops because it's <laughs> underpriced and right, you know, right. a lot of people want to get in and things like that. Yep. Uh, the IPO does not pop when a lot of people want to get out and nobody <laughs> wants to buy in. So, so that's. Except that, except that the people who bought in pre IPO were, were buying in at, at a higher valuation, right? The shares did trade at a higher level at some point. The fact they've come down now since. Maybe it's the day of issue, but I think it's maybe hopefully the whole public market 
kind of revaluing some of these things? Yeah, but yeah, the public. So, so the public market did not have an opportunity to value WeWork, right? The public market yes. did not. Yeah, so, it, when the first well, time yeah. it had the opportunity, yeah, it said yeah. no. Correct. Um, Correct. And the first opportunity, the public market had to value something like Uber. It said, uh, uh-uh, uh, no, <laughs> right? The, uh, and the same story with something like you know Slack. It said, yeah, oh, right. well, you know, maybe not, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, so I think that has happened a number of times yeah. recently. And yeah. that actually makes me really happy that you know a lot of these right, things same. that. Uh, Things that were had had crazy multiples in mm. um, in in sort of the, in the private world. Basically, you know, the private market had a lot of. There's a lot of money in the private world, yeah. and that money has been floating around. They've been looking for things to you know yeah. pile into, and you know if one you know if, if SoftBank piles into something, hundreds of other people <laughs> want to pile into it because hey, SoftBank is piling into it, so it, it must be good, right. right? So that sort of mentality. So there's a little bit of hot money chasing, hot money chasing, more hot money, yeah. um, and the public market is basically saying you know. I think that's too hot, and we're going to, you know, um, do the cold shower here. So I think that, that's 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 all that's all great. I think yep. and I think that's that's good, and it's periodically that should happen. Um, the the other thing I'll point out is a lot of these businesses mm. that trade on software like valuations are not software businesses, right? Mm-hmm. So Uber is not a software business. Um, WeWork is definitely not a software business, right? <laughs> <laughs> they might have a small piece of software that helps with scheduling or something, but it's not a software business. Um, but it's cool and it's trendy and tech people. Use it. That's well, but, yeah, but that's not. That, yeah, but that's that's not a software <laughs> business. So, so the thing is that with with. Uh, you, you pay more for certain types of software businesses because, you know, they are going to make money over a really, really long period of time. They're really yeah, sticky. Right. I think some of these things are not true for many of these things. And, uh, you know, again... It's, it's funny how kind of new and... when, when Look, I think I think tech is pretty hot right now, generally speaking. And it's funny when that, that sentiment takes over the market, that WeWork almost becomes... I mean, no one really thinks it's a tech business. But at some level, there is some sense of new and exciting and different and cool and kombucha and craft beer and... All of a sudden, it kind of gets – they manage to lump it all together somehow, right? Is this that sense of like – Good marketing. Yeah, yeah. But but also a market that wants to believe it. It mm. wasn't like the markets – no no one, no one's been hoodwinked about the quality of this business or what it does or how it makes money. There's nothing that's surprising or new that's come to the market all of a sudden. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that thing. You, you know, you, there's no fraud that – well, as far as we know. There's, you know no, there's nothing in that business or nothing in the financials that the public markets went, oh, we didn't know that. Well, we're not paying that then. It was a sense that for a long time – Tech is cool. Uber, Slack, Zoom. Uh, throw me some other names. What else you can come up with? Um, yeah, those are those are. I think some of the recent right, ones. I mean, yeah. Lyft. Um, you know, the, the, everyone was so excited about the new breed of companies. We work, as you say, with a bit of good marketing and some slick and people wanting to believe, right? Which is also one sign of a. Uh, some sort of potential exuberance in the markets when people just want to believe that they can consider WeWork a brand new type of company and therefore apply stupid valuations. I, I have to say, I think that's part of the, that's how you get those sort of valuations where people manage to put them together just because somehow they equate Slack and Zoom and Lyft and we work in the same conversation. <laughs> yeah, I am. Yeah, I, I think we agree. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. We've got time for one question and a bit of a little mini announcement at the end of it. Uh, This question comes from Jeremy in the the full mailbag. We should should, uh, utter the trademark words. We're going to dip into the full mailbag. That's what we're contractually obliged to say every time we do it. Not really. Jeremy says, question for the pod. Big fan of the show, even Mm. if I'm contractually obliged to say it. Jeremy, Jeremy, why would you think... You have to say that you like the podcast. We're, we're, we're happy to answer any questions anyone's got. You don't have to say you love the show. 
it might help you get on there. It might help your question get answered. You don't have to say it. There's no contractual obligation, is there, Doc? No, absolutely not. I mean, you know. Jeremy says, I would like to hear your thoughts on peer-to-peer lending, in particular a company called Ratesetter. Cheers, guys. Jeremy. Yes, I'd also like to say I'm 23 and trying to invest as much as possible and putting your lessons to use. Jeremy, you are a gun. If you keep up with that at 23, I promise you, you will have a very, very comfortable retirement. We're not allowed to promise anything in financial services, but I'm happy to promise that because if you do the right thing and keep investing, don't take your money out, buy sensibly, keep adding month in, month out, year in, year out. As long as you're putting more than a couple of bucks in, you are going to do very, very well, mate. So congratulations on starting investing. That is awesome. Mate, Peer-to-peer lending. Let me, again, define our terms. The whole idea of, speaking of tech excitement, of peer-to-peer lending is that rather than use a bank, rather than me putting money in the bank and that bank lending you money and it making a margin on the way through, there are new bits of software, new companies, new structures that in theory allow me to lend my money directly to you, you to borrow directly from me, so I get a better rate, you get a better rate. In theory, the person who misses out is the bank. And we're better off. You talked about removing friction. This is the ultimate in removing friction, I suppose. I don't have to put my money in the bank. You don't have to go to the bank. There's no credit managers and fancy marketing schemes and branches and stuff. In theory, I'm getting a better deal and you're getting a better deal. What can be wrong with that? Um, well, <laughs> nothing can be wrong with that as long as things are done right. right? It's <laughs> hard, uh, hard to know whether things are done right So or what not. are the pros and cons of peer-to-peer lending, mate? Well, so the, I think the biggest... Uh, well, the biggest advantage would be if there's a modern platform that is able to, you know, remove that friction. Mm-hmm. You're not paying for this head office cost, and you're basically basically paying in a middle software operator who's basically taking the data, doing the crunching, and basically saying, "Hey, I'm going to match you up with this one." And uh, yeah, okay. so it can work well. the The question really is. Um, does it actually have the data? Does it have mm. the ability? Does it have the, uh, I guess, the financial soundness I would expect? So that's, that, that's I think, the biggest risk in mm-hmm. my mind. Um, most of these things, again, like you're making money really on the margin here, right? Yep. You know, so the, you need scale. And as these things start scaling, um you know, and the, I mean, you know, you first need scale, right? So if you don't scale, there's there's always the probability that, that whatever company is doing this actually goes broke. <laughs> that could be bad. Be bad. And, and if that happens, I don't know what happens to <laughs> to these um, contra- contractual obligations that exist between individuals or even parts of individuals. I lend, let's say, mm. I lend five thousand mm. bucks to three people yeah. or four people or five people. How do I get it back? Yeah. What and what recourse do I have? Right. All all of those things. I, th- I think become... Uh, well, right. Money in the bank, the government guarantees it. If you're going to lend some money directly to somebody else, the same government guarantee doesn't apply, does it? Yeah, exactly. So so it's yeah, it's a, it's not the same thing as taking deposit, which is guaranteed up to a certain value by the government, right? So so that, that's, there's that. Um, how do I feel about it? I don't know much about this particular company. So I'm mm. generally a bit skeptical about you know peer-to-peer lending mm. or um, even about... I I feel that it is lending is is such a it's a difficult business. It's a very old business. It has existed for a long, long time. But banks are the specialists in this deal, <laughs> and even they get it wrong, right? Mm. Um, so I don't know how I feel about that. You have to really you have you have to know what you're doing, and without mm. knowing the details, it's just uh, it's again you know hard to say. So. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm somewhere. Neither here, neither there, and that's it. <laughs> Probably not the most satisfactory answer for him. 
I'm going to completely agree. Here's the problem I've got with peer-to-peer lending. There is genuinely extra friction, extra cost in the financial sector, right? Every time Commonwealth Bank has someone at a branch that no one uses or a mobile lender who's getting a brokerage fee or or a commission for, for, for doing a loan or for the fantastic marketing with the people skipping down the street that everybody sees and loves and knows, that's all fantastic. That's all fine, right? The problem, And that'll cost money. So if you can take all those away and still do everything else the bank does, then in theory, there's money there to be spent. Now, the problem is the banks we know after all of the costs, including by the way, all the efficiencies they have that you and I don't have, they only make about one or one and a half percent of the money they lend out. The net margins, in other words, about one and a half percent. That's the most you can reasonably extract. Now, that assumes, as you say, you have someone who's an expert in gathering the money, someone who's expert in actually providing the credit, someone who's an expert in the contracts and the software and all the stuff that goes with it. It's not like you're taking that away and replacing it with nothing, right? It's not like you and I meeting you know, down the pub and I'm giving you 50 bucks and you're saying, thanks very much, I'll pay you back in a couple of years. That's, a, that, that's, that's truly frictionless. It's hugely risky. That's why banks exist in the first place, right? This is the, this is the kind of key thing, right? Banks exist because it's a specialist task that neither you nor I know how to do well. And so we basically outsource it. In every part of life, we pay someone a fee to do something for us that we can't do as well ourselves. In fact, I, mean, I guess that's investment advice, right? At the end of the day, what we do. Um, we, we provide some expertise that other people don't necessarily have, don't have the time or effort or inclination to do. Um, in a perfect world, would, would peer-to-peer lending work nicely? Yeah, absolutely. Take some cost out. Do I really feel so good about this idea that I really want to kind of put it at risk? I don't know, mate. If, if I can get 1% on my money rather than half a percent in the bank, or if I can borrow for 3.3% rather than 3.5%, I mean, it's on one level, it's pretty attractive, Rob, to make large sums of money. On the other hand, it's a lot to risk. To You know, you're risking your entire mortgage, your entire savings, or part, parts thereof, to save what, 0.2, Just, I, I don't know. It's the old asymmetric outcome, right? If everything goes well, you're a little bit better off. If everything goes badly, you're horribly, horribly worse off, aren't you? That, that is correct. Yeah. And again, this it's like anything, like doing private investments. It's it's basically another right. another ball game. What? And you got to you got to measure up how much risk you're taking versus how much extra reward. return you're getting. Exactly. exactly. And 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 I think for most people, and this is you know again, this is like as as, as a general principle for most mm. people, sticking with well known. Well understood <laughs> investment <laughs> instruments is yeah. probably the best thing you can do. There's a reason they're there. Yeah. They're well understood. They're well regulated. They're well managed. Yeah. So yeah, I think that yeah. And if somebody you know, at, at somebody's at 23, they've got a long runway ahead of them yeah. in terms of when they can invest. You know, and actually doing it right, you know, is probably the best thing you can do um, because you get the full benefit of compounding. So you know, that's I think what I would say. Now speaking of starting young, mate, the little mini announcement I've got is we're going to put out a bonus episode this week. So this will probably go up, I assume, on Friday or Saturday. We we don't control the audio goodness. Our, our wonderful partners and friends at Triple M do that for us. Uh, so I'm going to make a slight promise on their behalf. We're going to try and get this one up today, Friday. Hopefully, touch wood, fingers crossed. And a bonus episode this Sunday, if it works. So just keep an eye on your podcast feed. We're going to put a bonus mailbag episode. We've got so much mailbag goodness from you guys, and we want to make sure we do it justice. We're going to do a separate standalone podcast. How good is that? That sounds awesome. If you have any questions or comments, as always, you can hit us up on all of the socials. You have to say socials these days. It's cool where you talk about social media. It's not social. Socials. The socials, mate. The socials. Um, so please, and email if you want to, please hit us up with any questions, comments, and feedback. The questions we ask and answer are yours. And if you don't like the ones that are being asked, ask your own. If you have anything you want to know, ask us as well, because that's what we're here for. We get paid the big bucks to stand here on a Friday morning and answer, comment those questions. Frankly, they're the things we like doing as well. I was just going to say, where is the big bucks? Well, there is that. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> 
You know what we should do? We're going to double the cost of this podcast for our listeners. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's instead, instead of being instead of being nothing, it's gonna be twice nothing. Which my high school math tells me is still nothing. That's twice nothing. I've got to rethink that through again. Yeah. Mate, so if people do want to get in touch, here's the thing. Uh Facebook, the Motley Fool Australia, or you can hit me up at Scott Phillips Money on Facebook, on Twitter at the Motley Fool AU, at Anirban Mahanti, or at TMF Scott P, or on Instagram on at the Motley Fool AU or at TMF Scott P. And if you want to email us, info at fool.com.au is our email address. Comments, feedback, suggestions, criticisms. We probably won't read those. Uh, we will actually, but <laughs> depressing. Don't send us criticism. Just send us nice stuff. And if you've got any questions, you might get them answered on the podcast. Mate, that's it. Before that's we go, it. don't forget you can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating. Five stars is always nice among friends. Leave us a review. Tell your friends. Help us spread the foolish good news. If you're enjoying it and you're getting some value out of it, there's a fair chance your friends will too. And of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash Triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.